0: This is Bill with another episode of Key Ozarks, What Makes Sense. Um, We're gradually transitioning from the Key Ozarks podcast to the What Makes Sense title. So that's why we have this little mixture of two titles going on. Over the years, I've gone through this a number of times and it's never been very satisfying. Uh, Originally, we had a not-for-profit organization called Orion Center and uh, that um, name kind of really wasn't very descriptive for a public business that we were running at the time. So we transitioned over to uh, Creation Expo. And um, when, that, when that exposition or museum closed, we were kind of uh, in limbo about what to have. We then opened up a gathering place or a community center called Key Gathering Place and uh, then acquired a radio station and we called it Key Radio. So I've encountered this name change from time to time and that's because I have more ideas than I have good sense so to speak. But in this case um, I was having a conversation with my daughter and she said you know what you're really trying to do in your podcast is talk about things that make sense. You're trying to get beyond ideologies and theories and just basic discussion and trying to focus in on things that are really true, and those are the things that make sense. And so instead of naming the show after a place, we decided to transition to a title that really better describes what it is. So that's the reason we're going to be the What Makes Sense show in the the foreseeable future. Once again, we have a little episode here about Uh, audio clips I made a few years ago. I'm kind of revisiting them because they're at the core of what we think of as a worldview, how we look at the world around us. And I thought by exploring these worldview clips, maybe we could clarify who we are as a people and maybe encourage other people to consider their worldview and come over to the side of what makes sense. So with that said, let's go with our first Astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson offered his advice about eight books every person should read. Because he's an outspoken atheist, I was intrigued by his choice of the Bible until I read his summary to learn that it's easier to be told by others what to think than it is to think for yourself. Tyson's assertion is foolish. One of the keys of civilization is that all of us are the product of the accumulated knowledge of people who lived before us. Believers can add that we have the wisdom of saints who preceded us. They testify to us what they learned in life. To deny this is to reject the greatest source of knowledge we have and to replace it with whatever we figure out in our one lifetime. In speaking against the authority of God, DeGrasse Tyson is being deliberately deceptive. We are easily influenced by people we want to admire, but we need to ask ourselves whether these people are wise in the knowledge of God or simply famous in the popular view. Neil DeGrasse Tyson is another one of those guys who's kind of in the line of. Uh, former scientists who have become popularizers of science. I'm thinking of people like Richard Dawkins, for example, um, Carl Sagan. Um, I almost think of Bill Nye the science guy, but that's kind of ridiculous because he was never really a scientist. But anyhow, they all have decided to um, champion the idea of evolution in some way because they think somehow or other that is at the heart of science, which... um, really is a worldview philosophical decision, uh, not a scientific position at all. It's just what they chose to do. And in this case, uh, Tyson, you call somebody with a hyphen name, hyphenized name, just their last name. Anyhow, Neil deGrasse Tyson decided to um, champion atheism by saying, well, it's better to think on your own than to Follow the ideas of other people or, in the case of the Bible, other books or other writers. And it's a, an absurd position because DeGrasse Tyson knows very well that all knowledge, including scientific knowledge, is the accumulation of input from lots of people historically. Uh, a scientist doesn't just make up science in his own mind in his own lifetime. He builds on the scientific thinking and expertise of former scientists So it's an absurd thought, but when you become a philosopher instead of a scientist, sometimes you come up with absurd thoughts. And we sometimes listen to these one-time great scientists, you might call them has-been scientists, and we think they must be really, really smart so they can talk to us about religion and philosophy and all kinds of stuff, and that they really should know more, even though he was just a guy who learned about cosmology and astrophysics. He doesn't have any expertise as I've, as far as I know in terms of automobile mechanics or any other kind of practical thought. So we just shouldn't give them so much credibility, especially in fields outside of their field of expertise. And I guess that's the point of that particular article. Don't disbelieve the Bible just because Neil deGrasse Tyson says so. Okay, let's go on to the next clip. Evolutionists and Biblical creationists are both looking at the same evidence. The difference is that creationists accept observational reality without the add-on belief in one kind of animal morphing into another. The Biblical view of life is that life was created, engineered if you will. God created the kinds and coded each genome to allow change within each kind in order to ensure survival in a changing world. All of the kinds have been in existence from the beginning, consistent with the Cambrian explosion evidence although creationists differ with the humanist time frame. Consistent with the evidence, we expect to see living things easily classified according to kind. Because all living things were designed by the same creator, we should expect to see similar body part features among the kinds. The question is what believers should believe. Similarity is not from evolutionary development, but is rather the result of a good engineer using features that work for different applications. Evolutionists often criticize creationists by mischaracterizing it. They would say such things as how could God have created millions and millions of species and how could millions and millions of species get on Noah's Ark? But that's not at all what uh, creationists believe or recognize scientifically. We recognize that God created the kinds and that that he endowed each kind with a lot of genetic variability. We see that in people. We see short people, tall people, light-skinned people, dark-skinned people, all kinds of varieties. And all of those varieties amplified when they're isolated in a particular part of the world. So, we have to remember that creation isn't the way evolutionists defined it. Creation science is as creation scientists define it. And if you want to learn what creationists believe, or what their theoretical models are, then you need to find a site where you can listen to creation scientists directly. Don't get involved in all the arguments on YouTube and Facebook and all those public media sites where rather naive people try to express sound bites that depict a very complex disagreement. Go to the source. Don't go to an evolutionary source alone or a creationist source alone, but see both sides. When we had a creation museum here in Camdenton, we did exactly that. We had a storyboard where for each scientific discipline, we fairly explained the evolutionary point of view and we fairly explained the creationist point of view and allowed visitors to make a reasonable judgment between the two of them. And yeah, I probably skewed it toward the one that made better sense to me a little bit. I made it more creationary, but really that's because creation is far more intuitive. It makes sense that all of the complexity we see in the universe and on our earth didn't just kind of happen in and of itself. There had to be a designer, an intelligent mind behind it. And uh, that was the point of that clip. Let's move on to another one. On August 21st, a solar eclipse will sweep across the United States straight through Missouri. Millions of people are expected to watch as the moon entirely covers the face of the sun. Isn't it lucky that the apparent size of the moon is nearly the same as the sun? That's what atheists would say. But researchers at the Discovery Institute see it as evidence of design, because solar eclipses are more than a novelty, but an important observational tool. For example, by observing stars that are visible except during an eclipse. Astronomers were able to watch the sun bend their light, making them appear out of place in the sky and confirming Einstein's theory of relativity. The evidence is that the same conditions that make life possible on Earth also provide the ideal setting for scientific observations. It's a matter of what believers ought to believe. The Earth is designed for our benefit and the universe isn't random. The heavens declare the glory of God. There are so many things we take for granted in the natural world and one of those is eclipses. We've all probably seen lunar eclipses, and some of us have seen solar eclipses. They're more rare, but we never really think about the significance of them, that there's this extraordinary coincidence, or what appears to be a coincidence, that the apparent size of the moon and the apparent size of the sun are almost identical. It's a very unlikely scenario. Most of the Planets in our solar system don't have that scenario where the apparent size of moon and sun are similar. But it's what makes eclipses, both the lunar and solar eclipses possible. And as the clip explains, it also makes certain kinds of discoveries possible. So when scientists were able to observe solar eclipses, they could actually observe the bending of starlight because when the the sun is eclipsed, all of a sudden the stars behind the Sun are visible and you can see how the light from those stars is bent and distorted slightly. So it was an extraordinary thing for scientists to find. It was made possible because of this apparent coincidence of the Moon's apparent size compared to the Sun and uh, people in the intelligent design movement are speculating that maybe that's intentional. Maybe the designer of the Sun and the Moon put that in place so that human beings could discover things. And that's just one of many 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 coincidences about the universe that seem, when you add them all together, seem to be more than just coincidences. They seem to be design features. So. If you ever want to um, learn more about intelligent design, you can go out and search for the Discovery Institute on the internet and you'll find credentialed scientists who are considering the design hypothesis as opposed to the naturalistic evolutionary hypothesis in both the universe and in biology. Okay, let's go on to another clip. Are dinosaurs and dragons the same animal? Evolutionists cringe at the thought because dragons lived at the same time as man. If dragons are dinosaurs, then dinosaurs did not die out billions of years ago, and the evolutionary timescale has no evidence. But aren't dragons different? Paintings of dragons tend to be highly ornamented with fanciful frills and spikes, like the dragons in Chinese restaurants. Dinosaurs are typically drawn like modern reptiles. But then a dinosaur fossil was found that brought hard evidence for the dragon connection. Scientists named it Dracorix because the spiked and frilled skull and long snout was so reminiscent of dragons. The Hebrew word canon described animals in remote places and was translated by King James scholars as dragons. Modern translators change dragons to jackals, perhaps because we don't see dragons around anymore. But if scientists named their fossil dinosaur after the dragon, the possibility that they are the same animal seems quite scientific. I first learned about Dracorix at the Indianapolis Children's Museum where they had a model on display and then later on I bought a book about dinosaurs from a creationist perspective and it had a full page on Dracorix. Dracorix's full name is Dracorix Hogwartsia. I guess the discoverer of uh, Dracorix saw him as kind of a magical creature and related that to Harry Potter so it just shows you the uh, oh sense of humor, the whimsy of some scientists uh, involved in the search for dinosaurs. A few years ago, Bryant Auction actually had a model of Dracorex that was sold and sat in the shop of a sign maker for a number of years. I kind of coveted that uh, model, but he was kind of expensive, so I didn't get him. I don't know what ever happened to our local Dracorix model. Probably still sitting around somewhere. Anyhow, the significance of Dracorix is he really does look like a uh, a movie dragon from one of the dragon movies. So It just shows that there's more about living things in the past that we don't know from just the fossils until finally that special fossil is found that shows maybe there really is a connection between dinosaurs that we think of like uh, oh semi-real living uh, lizards to something that is much more like a dragon from our fanciful artwork from both Europe and China and other places so that's the connection. Uh, Dracorix is a dragon-style dinosaur Okay, here's another clip. As I write this, I'm enjoying a view of Lake of the Ozarks. We live on the lake as if it's always been here, navigating its waters by boat and enjoying picturesque views. Nevertheless, we know it's a recent creation formed by plugging a modest river with a concrete dam. But nature performs miracles just as rapidly. The steamboat Arabia sank in the Missouri River before the Civil War and was lost for over a century. Men searched the river without success until Arabia was discovered under 45 feet of mud in a farmer's field. We can barely imagine how the course of the mighty Missouri changed in such a short time. The Bible testifies to God's use of world-changing forces at the time of the flood. With too little imagination, modern men look at canyons and mountains and oceans and speculate how they came to be. They imagine long processes, but the Bible testifies of a worldwide cataclysm whose impact we can't fully comprehend. We've all heard the phrase, truth is stranger than fiction. And I I think that's really true. I think uh, one of the issues that face um, scientists, and it's almost an enforced thing, is a lack of imagination because scientists aren't supposed to imagine things. They're supposed to, um, they're disciplined to look at evidence and say, well, how could this come to be? And when it comes to how it could come to be, they look at things that are familiar to them, uh, processes that happen in the present And for that reason, they can't picture something like a worldwide flood as described in the Bible. And scientists are also reluctant to look at written historical evidence. So they look at something that seems to be a historical reference in the Bible, and for that matter, in other cultures, other flood stories, and they discount it. They said, well, just people wrote this. What do people know? People might have made up stories. They might have misinterpreted events. And so scientists um, do what the Bible says, they strain at a net trying to figure out things, and they often just miss the obvious. The obvious is what is recorded in the historical records of people, including the Bible. (coughs) And what actually happened is there was a worldwide flood, but it's something that is beyond the scope of science. It isn't based on evidence, it's based on historical record And uh, we've all done that telephone experiment where you know um, people line up in a room and they whisper a story to each other, and by the time it goes around in the circle, the story has become distorted. And I think that little uh, exercise was really designed to make people doubt the evidence of testimony. But it's it's really a false narrative. That idea of passing a story around in a room um, by necessity causes people to distort the story not because history is normally something that distorts, it's because people are in a hurry, they're in an artificial situation, they're hearing somebody whisper a completely unfamiliar story and then they're trying to digest it with their hearing and then turn it into a story that they tell the next person and it's bound to be inaccurate. That is not the way history works. The way history works in practice is scholars get together and they share what they know and they weed out the things that are not true and they collaborate on what is true and then they record it. So what we read in the Bible or any other ancient history is what scholarly people have decided is what actually happened. Very much like news reporting today. Now that's kind of a problematical thing because news reporting today is deliberately distorted because people have an axe to grind, a philosophical, ideological purpose to achieve and they're not just trying to record the facts. One of my pep peeves about modern news is that 90% of it is not news. It is speculation about what the news might be next week you'll always hear these stories about, well, we think the president is gonna have a press conference and he's gonna report the following. And two weeks later, the press conference happens and it might be something entirely different, but in the meantime, everybody's abuzz about what the president is gonna say. And that has become the equivalent of modern day news. It's kind of speculation about what might happen and what actually happens kind of gets lost in the mix. Okay, let's go on to another clip. In my book, I present the Christian gospel as something simple, a free gift of the Lord. But people can make it complicated. Jesus came to man with fundamental truths and instructions. But man changed it from a lifestyle calling into a religious institution, more like their temple worship. God is calling many people back to the basics, to love the Lord with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Religion tends to draw people away from the simple gospel to worry about doctrine and practices instead of humanity and compassion. Always remember your first calling. It's a matter of what believers ought to believe. The Apostle Paul advised his protege Timothy solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to ruin. He was calling Timothy to simplicity, kindness, and a life of integrity. When people accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, As the phrase implies, two things happen. First of all, they receive a free gift, and that is salvation. It's a free gift that can't be earned. It is just something given to them. So that is Jesus as savior, but we are not just saved. We're also called to do works, and that is Jesus as Lord. The Lord has commanded us to go into the nations and make disciples of all the people. So we are called to do works, And sometimes we get confused. We think that our works are in some sense earning our way to salvation. The two things aren't related. And sometimes teachers look at our works and say, hey, you're working too hard. Salvation is by faith and not by works. And Christians get all tied up in that confusion between salvation and works. And it really is just so simple, but people make it complicated. You are saved by grace, it's a free gift of Jesus Christ. Then, once you are saved, you're called into an army, you're enlisted, you're brought into a place where you're supposed to do the Lord's will. That is what Jesus being Lord means. Look for ways you can serve him, look through the scriptures, examine the life of Jesus and what he called us to do, what he did himself, and then do likewise. It's very simple, let's not make it complicated. Let's go on to another clip. Principle of Liberty No. 22 says a free people should be governed by law, not the whims of men. For that purpose, laws must be few enough that they are understandable to all. Nancy Pelosi famously remarked that Congress had to pass the Affordable Care Act before we could know what was in it, because the written law had too many provisions to be understandable by reading it. Similarly, all our representatives considered a feather in their cap to sponsor a new legal provision. I propose a new law. For every law the government passes, they should repeal five useless ones. Maybe then businesses won't need teams of lawyers to assure compliance with the regulatory state. We advocate the Convention of States process to restore compliance with the first principles of constitutional government. As long as we neglect constitutional authority, we will be subject to the whims of men imposing arbitrary laws over us. All Americans have a common cause in this. A few years ago I was on the board of aldermen of a teeny-tiny town called Lynn Creek, Missouri. And one day, the chief of police came in front of the board and he said, look, we have too many laws. Our officers on the street can't possibly know all of the laws, so they can't enforce the laws. And so we got to thinking about that and we looked into what the city ordinances were and we pulled out some books and we found that there were 10 volumes of city ordinances for a little teeny tiny town of about 100 people. I'm being optimistic when I say 100 people. And as we started trying to read those laws or ordinances, we quickly learned that some of them were incredibly obsolete. Many of them were in conflict with other ordinances. And it was in fact impossible to know all the rules that the city supposedly lived by. And it was a wonderful illustration for me back then about how ridiculous the laws have become. That we break laws all the time because we don't even know they exist. And I remember being a kid and hearing this phrase, ignorance of the law is no excuse. But that was back when maybe laws were thought to be straightforward and simple. People lived according to the Ten Commandments as the primary laws. Now our laws are highly nuanced and specialized. We even had a law in Teeny Tiny Lynn Creek about how tall your grass could be. And if your grass grew to be too tall, you could receive a fine. And the police officers rebelled against that. They said, I'm not going to I'm a law enforcement officer. I'm not going to go around policing the length of grass. And, uh,. We saw their point quickly. That is the state of American affairs today and something we need to fix. Here's our last clip. If worldview has such a powerful hold over people, how do we overcome it? Hillary Clinton's mentor, Saul Alinsky, advocated a ruthless process of fragmenting society into classes, using ridicule and peer pressure to change people's minds. Alinsky believed that honorable people would be helpless because they would continue to seek the high road and the low road would overwhelm them. Donald Trump astutely shook things up by not being such a high-road conservative and the Alinsky-inspired media has gone nuts over it. It's highly entertaining, maybe even game-changing, but not a strategy Bible believers can embrace. We are called to be salt and light in order to overcome the worldview of the enemy. The hero of a superhero show was told that his real power was his goodness. The Lord's goodness is our superpower, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this present darkness. What is happening in media today has often been described as a war of worldviews. And we see this in the area of political correctness, which is kind of morphing into this thing we call wokeness. And what's happening is people on the left are trying to control speech. They're trying to shame us into using their preferred language. And they're hoping that if they change our language, They will change our underlying attitudes, our worldview about things. Uh, this began many years ago when we started not referring to homosexuals as homosexuals, but as gay people, because I guess gayness sounded kind of happy and cheerful and everything, and kind of masked the idea of what homosexuality is. Whereas once it was a sin, if you're looking at it from a church perspective, and a mental illness, if you're looking at it from the point of view of psychiatry, it became this other thing, kind of a choice. First it was an alternate lifestyle, and then it became gayness, which kind of implied kind of a happy, normal sort of thing. Now, I really didn't wanna get in depth about homosexuality, but it points out how we have transferred as a culture, as a nation, where People are trying to control our language in the hopes that they're, they will control our worldview. What I'm doing in this series is trying to appeal to your mind and your sense of what makes sense as a way to transform your worldview. I'm not trying to coerce you by policing your words and your language. I'm trying to reason with you, which I think is what we're supposed to do as human beings. Okay, Uh, that's all for now. Thanks for joining us today. Until next time, go out and do good. (laughs)